Welcome to our 56th lesson in the book of Revelation. I'm entitled it The Second Trumpet, The Fiery Mountain. Let us read those two verses. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. This sounds fantastical, and throughout most of church age, this was seen as miraculous. Something that only God could bring about. And this is true, but not in the sense in which they had defined it. What we've, hopefully, you've been following along in the lessons so what we have come to realize is that science and faith are married together, much like religion and politics are married together. One cannot exist without the other, and it's sort of an uneasy, symbiotic, parasitical relationship And we'll see as we go through Revelation that these become married together in an unholy matrimony with their goal, combined goal, agreed upon goal, is to control you. But that is not God's goal. In God's scheme of things, The two are married together because the two flow from one God. And as we've studied in Revelation, we've seen that somewhat unorthodox, but highly credible and supportable by evidence, manifestations of the physical, the empirical, then help us to understand how God, through non-empirical means, brings about these changes. If you're following along in the slide, what we're looking at here on the title slide is a 2022 eruption, Hungatonga, Hungahapai, an island in the Pacific is being photographed from space. This is how dramatic it actually appears. This is how large this eruption actually is. And you see the inner cloud is spread over a tremendous area. But moving outward from that cloud is another ring, and that is the shock wave traveling through the waters, through the oceans, visible from space. So we're going to look at the power of volcanoes. Because throughout much of church history, this particular set of verses has been seen as an angel throwing a burning mountain from on high, out of the sky, into the ocean. But that's 
kind of implied. That's not stated here. What is stated is something like a great mountain was thrown into the sea. It could have been thrown into the sea from the land and not from the sky. Indeed, much of what we bring to Scripture is our own error. That's why we don't want to eisegete Scripture. We don't want to read our beliefs into Scripture. And it's sometimes so subtle that we don't even realize we're doing it. Thus, we have to go back and look at what we've called space weather. The Earth has been seen in past as isolated from entire creation, the entire universe. Universe was empty. Well, 1957-58, the International Geophysical Years, we were able to launch actually put probes into space and measure what was going on outside of the Earth's atmosphere, we determined that space was not empty. And this has only progressed and become more apparent over time. Space is far from empty. The old ancients either belief that there was something between the emptiness of the planets and, and, and the stars and all this has proved to be true. It's not liquid. But it is the outpouring of billions and billions and billions of stars. The galactic winds. And we know this because our own star produces the solar winds. It also produces coronal mass ejections. Now, to study this in detail, you have to go back to earlier lessons. Well, everyone's afraid the sun's going to, at some point in time, go into a supernova and destroy itself and all the planets. What is far more probable, indeed likely has happened in the past, at least once in the past, is the sun will micronova throughout a tremendous amount of solar wind, ionizing particles, as well as coronal mass ejections that will impact the Earth. Now, the Earth currently, since at least the mid-19th century, has been undergoing a pole shift. The south and north magnetic poles are shifting. Doesn't say that the physical north and south pole, the top and bottom of the rotating earth, are shifting, but the magnetic poles by which we do navigation with compasses. Compass doesn't point to true north, it points toward magnetic north. Well, these are shifting, and they're shifting faster and faster. And we've also 
have noticed, since we've been putting probes into space, that the Earth's magnetosphere that protects us from much of these ionizing galactic solar radiation, ionizing waves, is weakening. Because we've measured it weakening. And it's weakening progressively faster as the poles speed up toward this shift. Now the problem is, more and more radiation is able to make it into the atmosphere, impact the Earth. It's energized, as well as less protection from these coronal mass ejections. And of course, we talked about the Carrington effect. It was first observed in 1859 and has been seen with subsequent CMEs and solar flarings. And it does impact our weather. It does impact the production of volcanoes, eruption of volcanoes, and the production of earthquakes. But also, it impacts the solar, I mean, the wind and tide patterns. It actually is the greatest effector of earth weather. And we've talked about this in some detail. So if all this sounds new to you, go back to the beginning and start picking up our lessons or go to spaceweather.org and, and follow along in their videos. I do not subscribe to their evolutionary viewpoint. I do not subscribe to everything they say. But we should be able to understand that their measurements and their hypotheses give us an understanding of how spiritual effects translate into physical effects. Because we know that we do not understand energy. We only define energy by its effects, not by what it is, but by what it does. And this is in line with scripture, Hebrews 11.3. The visible is predicated upon the invisible, that which cannot be seen. But it is there. And man, begrudgingly, unwillingly, is dragged kicking and screaming into this hypothesis. In fact, in our last lesson, we talked about that. One of Jastrow's quotes is that the scientist, after long millennia of struggle, climbs the mountain of ignorance, only to see theologians have been up there since the beginning. Now, it's not all theologians. He was an agnostic. He was not a Christian, though Christians lay claim to a lot of his quotes. He never, to our understanding, admitted coming to an understanding of salvation. So all his supposed knowledge didn't avail him much if he couldn't come to accept Christ as Savior and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
But what we're seeing throughout the Great Tribulation is that man's control is basically non-existent and has always been non-existent. Especially without godly knowledge. Now, the first book of the Bible actually penned, we believe, was Job. And when you go to Job 38 through 41, God is asking Job a series of questions. Can you control? Do you know? Are you guiding? Can you tell me? You want to be God? Let us put it to the test. I know these things. Do you know these things? And Job had to admit ignorance. And when he came to that point, then in chapter 42, Job was saved. See, it's not enough to know. You must believe and repent and accept. That is a work of the Holy Spirit within you. And that is going to be the function of the Great Tribulation. Most of it. Confronting man with his impotence, his lack of control, though man seemingly believes he has control. And Revelation shows us that the spiritual and physical are interconnected. Though it talks about angels blowing trumpets, we've talked about this being a metaphor. There's no angel floating in the sky, blowing a trumpet, flapping its wings, blind hair, radiating, looking beautiful, because angels are spirit beings. They have no form, except as they need to perform their current mission. These are images for us, all humanity at all time, to understand that angels are given this mission of focusing spiritual energy, which translates into physical energy, to produce physical events. These are not arbitrary. It is God who says in Isaiah 1.18, Come, let us reason together. God never says, have blind faith. If it was simply a matter of blind faith, there'd be no need for the Bible. But there is a need for the Bible. It is laid out in a coherent fashion. It is laid out according to the four laws of logic. Love identity. The Bible defines. It defines its own terms. Love non-contradiction. The law, the Bible does not both confirm and deny itself. And mankind's eternal search to find contradictions in the Bible have come to nothing. The Bible has never been discredited. And up until the 20th 
century, the late 20th century, it was still the number one bestseller in the world. People were hungry for knowing. They're not always hungry for salvation. And this has caused this crisis because judgment is coming. And so God is warning mankind, you and I, that judgment is coming. Get ready. And we saw in the seals that these were results of sinful man's controlling. What we're seeing in the trumpets is God's response to wake up. Because a trumpet blast in the scripture is a call to attention. Be ready for the next command, whether it be worship or moving out or attacking or retreating or repenting. That is why in the Hebrew uh, religious calendar, you have what they call the Festival of Trumpets that precedes the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The day of accountability, of judgment. Be aware. Be alert. It is coming. It is imminent. And that is what we're seeing here. And so, on the next page of the slide, we have this schematic, this graphic, showing the suns with the solar rays and cosmic rays and galactic cosmic rays coming down. And while he calls it supernova remnants, we're not looking at supernovas. We're looking at micronovas. And believe it or not, they're probably much more prevalent throughout the stars that we're able to, to look at both with visible light and, and other wavelengths. And we've documented how these stars repeat these events, measurable events. And it's not unreasonable then to believe that our sun will do the same. Because along with law of non-contradiction, we also have the law of excluded middle, meaning we can't make up options that we want to have there. And the Bible doesn't. The Bible says one is born in sin. All have sinned. All are conceived in sin. Thus you're either a sinner or you are a saved sinner. You're lost or you're saved. There is no excluded middle. There is no third option. There's no neutral position. I have a free mind. That is the premise 
of free will. I have a third position. My mind is not enslaved to sin, and it's not enslaved to Christ. It is a free entity able to choose, except that's not biblical. You can't make that statement and be totally biblical because your mind is not free. Romans 1, 18 through 28. You come from having developed a sinful worldview to explain your world without Christ. I have to go over this time and time and time again for those who just jump in the middle of these studies, because otherwise it is incoherent to them. Because they come from this violation of the law of excluded middle. I'm free. I can pick. I can choose what I want to choose. But that is an illusion. And because of that, you do not make logical inferences. Your inferences are illogical. Now, we take the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, which is either-or logic, and the law of excluded third middle, and we can analyze the empirical and develop logical inferences from that. Even the laws can do that. But we see a, another logic competing against that, and that's the both and logic. I can be both saved and lost. I can be both right and wrong. I can have both good and evil within me. There are going to be dark and light forces at work trying to maintain a balance. And I am to give them balance. That sound familiar in your propagandic movie, television, music themes? Your poetry, your literature, everything that outflows apart from the Bible tries to entice you into both and logic. They may start out with either or to bring you in. You cross the street. It's either you or the car. You both cannot occupy the same space at the same moment in time. But under both and logic, both you and the car should be able to reach a consensus and occupy the same space. It just then never works out in reality. Same way with this idea of control. You drive down the road at 80 miles an hour, you think you have control. You tweak the steering wheel, you keep the car in the lane, and by and large it goes as planned majority of the time. You have no understanding of the fragility of your control. Let it start raining. 
let you hit a patch of of oil or go around the curve a little too fast and hit a patch of sand and see how much control you have. You suddenly lose control, pass it over to the laws of physics, and Newton doesn't drive well. Your car does not have a good day. Neither do you. You're just a moment away of being out of control. At every moment that you're hurtling down the highway. You think you have control. No. You have a guise a facade of control, but you do not understand the forces at work and how fragile your control is over them. Because much of what we think we believe is built on ignorance. Because we ignore the non-empirical. Well, it's non-empirical. How can we discover it? The scripture tells us the non-empirical. So the focus of the Great Tribulation, as I alluded to earlier, is mercy in warning. Imagine what is occurring. We have these tremendous changes on Earth since the Micronova. The earthquakes and volcanoes. And they're constantly rumbling such that it's like the daily news is just filled with eruption after eruption, earthquake after earthquake, cataclysmic storms everywhere. Remember, the land masses, in reality, even right now, are nothing more than lighter rock floating on fluids. The heavier rock has sunk down. It's the bedrock of the seas. And that rock, which is lower down, you think you're building on solid rock. That solid rock is floating on a tremendous amount of water that still remains in the earth. And beneath that, the molten core in its various layers. You are not on solid rock at all. That is the illusion. Like you're driving down the road and having control. It's a convenient illusion. It works for a time. Until the land shakes. Or the volcano erupts. Then that illusion of control immediately disappears. Go back to Pompeii. Go back to Santorini. And we're going to talk about those. Not so much Pompeii. It's pretty well known. And Vesuvius was kind of a minor player in, in the game. As we're going to talk about today.
So the micronova with its cosmetic, magnetic, gravitational undulations continues during the Great Tribulation. These are not random events, but guided to prevent complete destruction. Their purpose is to warn mankind. Judgment is coming. It is imminent. Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. Write it down. Make it plain so that they that run can still read it. It will not tarry. It will come in its appointed time. You may scoff at it. It may not come in your time. That doesn't mean it won't come. It'll come in its appointed time. In fact, Christ makes this point over and over again. Nobody knows the time when this will occur, except the Father. In his appointed time, it will come. Thus, it is not random. And these events that are occurring are not random. And the events that have occurred are not random. But they appear random to us because we ignore the influence of space weather on earth weather. First of all, it was unmeasurable throughout most of man's history. So man just linked them together through his religion. And it was not wrong. It was an exercise in intellectualism. But it was shrouded in imagery of religious nature that was culturally based and ignored the truth that was originally given to mankind. So each culture redefined itself shifting these beliefs to fit its own culture, all the while writing God out of the picture. Romans 1, 18 through 28, tells us this, drives home the message that that which could be known of God was rejected. And instead, creation was substituted for God. Now, modern man doesn't do this, right? Of course they do. Nature. Evolution. It's all about creation randomly controlling us. And we trying to wrest control away from nature. Where's God in all of this? There is no God. He can't be measured, therefore he must not exist. And those who do say he exists are fools, ignorant. Except there are always those that believe. But there is so much false belief because Satan will keep you ensnared in the emptiness and vacuum of your belief system of works. 
And then he will try to destroy by infiltration into the church and true salvation and those who believe in the truth of the scriptures and pull them off the mark. And we talked about this during our letters to the churches. And as time goes on, we see this overwhelming the entire church movement. Such that it is only what appears to be a helpless, insignificant, tiny remnant that still clings to the truth of the Bible. Then suddenly they're gone. You still have a major church movement, but it's not God's church. It's man's church. It's Satan's church. I don't mean satanic worship in the sense of black Catholic masses and all of this, but I mean it is that one hermetic, dialectic paganism that has always opposed the true belief. Satan and man claim to control nature, but only control people by deception. And God challenges their claims by revealing their lies. And he does this through his recalcitrant reality. This is real events that are occurring that are beyond man's control. Man's explanation, man's understanding. And they keep occurring. In fact, the very tectonic plate, continent that you claim to be bedrock, is now floating and moving. Measurably, dramatically. Because, as I said, Earth is not solid, but floats like on sand. The continents float, moving together to form one continent, to form Pangaea, so to speak. And even the skies appear fragile, undulating, caused by the impact of the solar galactic winds and the CMEs, and you have these shifting, moving, aurora borealis, northern lights. Same thing in the south. And they're red. And these effects happen and have happened in the past, like during the Great Carrington effect. And even in more modern times, we have pictures of it. So imagine you're living in this time when the skies appear fractured. The continents are unsettled. The weather patterns have shifted and changed. The tidal patterns have shifted and changed. You have almost daily news of earthquakes and volcanoes. Then you have the tremendous one. And you have Climatic, climatic, continental instability that ensnares 
perpetual fear. And people demand Asabea security, ungodly security, government security. Save us. Revelation 6. Save us from the rocks. Let the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of God rather than repent. Now, each of these trumpets, as we're going to see, affects a specific aspect that man thinks he controls. Just like the first four seals demonstrated a specific aspect that occurs when man government tries to control or man's society tries to control and can't control and it spins out of control. And since Noah's cataclysm commonly called Noah's flood, but the flood was actually, from the rain, was actually a tiny portion of it. The earth's crust fractured, and a lot of the water that was separated from the visible water gushed up. The rain was just an after effect of both a probable solar micronova striking the atmosphere as well as all the debris thrown up into the stratosphere or higher by the fracturing of the Earth's crust into these tectonic plates and releasing not just the water that was trapped underneath, but also great amount of molten magma, ash that was thrown up into the sky cooled the earth. And the combined cumulative effects of this produced the clouds and the tremendous storms that rained down for 40 days and nights trying to cleanse the the skies of this debris. Now this actually occurred over a year's time frame with the water cushioning the ark from the shock of this, breaking up of the continents as they sped away from each other. The Great Tribulation will then reverse this, but over a much slower time period, seven years rather than one year, since God's not trying to wipe out mankind. I mean, Pearl didn't wipe out mankind there either. He saved eight souls. Eight sinners. Some of whom were saved by faith, some of whom weren't. Showing the grace and mercy of God. 
Let's restart. And once again, let us come together. Let us reason together. Let us follow the truth. And by and large, they said no. But since Noah's cataclysm and the development of the separated continents with the seas between them being very deep now, you have these sea lanes of control, which is the secret to the empires. The secret to the Bronze Age was trade. Organized trade. It's called the Bronze Age for a reason. They specialized in bronze. Well, bronze requires two materials in abundance. It requires copper, which comes primarily in those days from the island of Cyprus. That's how it got its name from the word cupric for copper. And zinc, which came from the east. Areas that we would call Iran or Pakistan, Afghanistan, those, those areas. So you had this trade circle that depended heavily, not on just on overland transportation, but on sea lanes of communication transportation. In fact, A.T. Mahan defined this concept in the late 19th century. He defined how Britain became an empire, managed its empire, and wrote this book to inspire America to follow Britain's example. Now, it inspired everybody. Even into the 1920s, you could find his book on nearly every industrialized nation's naval vessel. Thus, you think of World War I as mainly a land battle, and it was, because England controlled the sea lanes of communication. But you get into World War II, and the Pacific War was primarily about controlling the sea lanes of communication. And America came into its own. And we even controlled the Atlantic sea lanes of communication, submarine warfare. Now, Britain, uh, England, Germany tried to with submarines, both in World War I and World War II. But that's a raider philosophy. It's a strategy of weakness. It can be effective at certain points, but as an overall strategy, it is not a strategy of strength. And thus, this is the reason America became the superpower after World War II. It wasn't due to the nuclear energy, the nuclear threat. That was to focus your attention so you can look at it. But except for the two bombs dropped on Japan, it's not been used. In fact, it's actually a strategy of weakness. Who deserves to be destroyed totally? 
That is the question you must answer if you're going to use nuclear weapons. And nobody has come up with an answer for that since World War II. But it was sea power and remains sea power that defines who is and is not a superpower. This does not mean that you can win primarily by air and sea power. You still have to put boots on the ground and have land power. But that requires resupply. And so what we have is this imagery of a great burning or fiery mountain. Now, mountains are primarily a product of the Second Age. We don't have any imagery of mountains during the First Age that ended with Noah's cataclysm. And of course, we've lived throughout the Second Age and it will end with the return of Christ. And during this great tribulation period, we see or read that every mountain and island will disappear. Now, islands are just nothing more than mountains in the water. And the island is just the top of the mountain poking through. Thus, basically, it's saying every mountain will disappear but one. And that's the mountain on which rests Jerusalem. It will be the only elevated land that will remain during the Third Age. So mountains are these immense physical objects of the Second Age, often associated with volcanoes near fault lines and near or under the seas. Like I said, Islands are just mountaintops in the seas. Now, let's look at some historical, influential volcanic eruptions. Now, the one thing I like about modern technology, you can get these apps now on your phones, well, easier than on your computers. And they'll let you know whenever any earthquake occurs. And you know something? The earth is shaking all the time. It's mapped out the fault lines. You can step across a fault line in Iceland. Runs right through the island. Right down the Atlantic Ocean. You have the ring of fire around the Pacific. And it's constantly shaking and twitching. Now I have mine set for Richter scale 5 and above because 4 and below is just way too numerous. You're getting dinged all the time. And it's interesting to note how many 6s we have after a major 
solar flare or CME ejection. Because these energized particles, especially the solar flares, pass through the atmosphere. If they're not deflected by the magnetosphere, they just blast right through the atmosphere, right into the molten core, adding more energy. And thus, increasing the temperature of the magnum in specific areas. And we see a rise in volcanic activity. How many here have heard of Helka, the volcano in Iceland? It's called Helka because in their language it means the gates of hell. And it's been ongoing for a long, long time. Now what's known as Helka 3 is third, what they call its third major eruption, occurred around 1100 B.C. I believe it was influential in the Bronze Age collapse. It threw so much material into the stratosphere. Now, once it gets in the stratosphere, it stays there. If you don't have the rain to immediately wash it out, you have this tremendous amount of ash and debris in the stratosphere, and it just floats up there. and it, It's carried along by the high-level jet streams, and it circles the Earth. And if there's enough material, it can start dimming the sunlight, dimming the radiation from the sun, blotting it out, dimming the light. And guess what else? It starts lowering the temperature. It starts changing the wind patterns, less energy hitting the earth. It starts affecting the climate. It starts affecting crops. Now, the cradle of Western civilization, it was the Mediterranean. Heavily trading in bronze material like zinc and copper, of course, foodstuffs and, and technology and political influence. And the Minoan Empire, the early, early ancestors to the Greek, controlled Eastern Mediterranean trade. Well, they were tremendously weakened by the Thera eruption, Senatoria, at around 1600 BC. And they went into a decline from which they never recovered. And they were replaced by the Mycenaeans from the Greek mainland, And they became very warlike, very aggressive, very domineering of the Eastern Mediterranean. And these are the ones that were actually involved in what we would term the Trojan War. Ten years, they spent themselves. They disrupted trade. They disrupted civilized and organized political stability, and then coupled with the climatic instability, the Bronze Age collapsed and produced nomadic sea peoples that further weakened these Bronze Age 
civilizations, such that the only two remaining after the Bronze Age collapse were Assyria and Egypt, but greatly weakened. Greatly weakened, greatly changed. And these were going to either pass out of existence, which Assyria did, or morph into something different, which Egypt did. When it was conquered by Alexandria, Alexander, and then taken over by his surviving general Ptolemy, it was no longer Egyptian. It was now Hellenized Egyptian. It had changed into something different. As did every culture in that region for the most part. They became Hellenized. Tambora in 1815 resulted in Europe's lost summer. This earthquake was so tremendous in the Pacific and threw so much debris into the stratosphere that it literally dimmed the sun, changed the climate, ruined the crops. May have been an impetus for supporting Napoleon's return. Because when you're starving, you will seek for security. And so this climate change. may have given rise or changed literature. Such that the stories of vampires and also Mary Shelley's for Frankenstein were written after this due to Bad climatic conditions, being trapped indoors, they wanted to make up stories, scary stories. And here you go. Krakatoa was in 1883. It was the first major volcano studied by science. And its shock waves circled the earth several times. And tsunamis were measured. And of course, the Tongo eruption in 2022, measured from, well, seen from space, and tremendous size of it. These are just ones that we know about. And there's not all of them. There's one. St. Helena's in America. There's a volcano in the Philippines that literally shut down the American military presence there. 
It would just cost too much to rehab the bases from the effects of this volcano on the main island. The Americans said, okay, we'll leave. We're not wanted here anyway. We'll just leave. And they left. One volcano did that. And there have been others. Let's look at the Volcano Explosivity Index. It's a logarithmic scale. It's acronym. Of course, we have acronyms for it. VEI. It's logarithmic. With each increase in number, increasing its ferocity by a factor of at least 10. Now, it's somewhat of a subjective scale. If you're following along on the slides, I've got a graphic of it. And over on the far right of the slide are examples of it. VEI of zero, where it doesn't spew hardly anything into the sky. And we have Kilaia in Hawaii. that just oozes magma, dumps it in the ocean, constantly flowing. But it doesn't spew anything into the sky. It doesn't really, is tremendous, doesn't cause tsumis. It just kind of just oozes. Now, I want you to know that there are volcanic activity occurring in the ocean floor constantly. And we photographed it, we meaning mankind. These pillow or pillow volcanic nodules that are constantly oozing out of the ocean floor as the tectonic plates separate there. Of course, where they're separating in one spot, they're moving together in another spot, causing earthquakes. The larger the number on this scale, the greater the ejecta. Tremendously greater. And so you go up to number four, Mount Pali. You go up to five, Mount St. Helens, which occurred in our time period. You go up to six, which was Krakatoa that we just talked about. They think. We're going to put it on a scale. Mount seven is Tambora. And eight is so massive that they made it up. The Yellowstone Volcano eruption, which supposedly happened... Tons of hundreds of thousands of years ago. If you're an evolutionist. If you're a young earth biblicist, it occurred during, of course, Noah's cataclysm and the aftermath. These that we're going to see during the Great Tribulation will probably be off the scale especially this one that they're talking about. It will be tremendous. It will be unprecedented. And it will literally fall into the sea. Now in the last slide here, we see an undersea volcanic eruption. Just imagine how tremendously powerful the shock waves are. 
for this underground, undersea volcano to erupt and still eject material into the atmosphere. And if you were above it, you could see the shock wave moving out across the water. And of course, it's moving out through the water. And as it gets close to, to land, the ocean floor rises up into the continental shelf and then rise up closer. It gets translated into higher and higher columns of water. Tsamis rushing ashore. But God says there will be mercy. The one-third destruction warns man to repent and avoid the second death. In other words, judgment. Repent. Get saved. Talks about the water turning to blood. That should literally mean the blood of, the, of all the sea life, one-third of it being destroyed. But somehow, I don't see bodily disruption only destroying one-third of the sea life. I mean, it'll be destroyed, but it's like concussion. It will, the concussion will just turn the insides to jelly, and you die, and then you float, and you rot. But also, this disruption in solar radiation and wind patterns and tidal patterns such that the ecology of the entire ocean is disrupted, you have this, I believe, red tide type phenomenon. Now, we know red tide as this abnormal blooming of algae that poisons the fish, that poisons the mollusks and the ocean life, and don't be going swimming in it. It's toxic. We have it off the coast of Florida every year. Imagine this in one-third of your oceans. Oh, and the biggest producers of oxygen for our atmosphere is in the ocean. It may become a little harder to breathe. Just so you know. Plus all the debris that is thrown up into the atmosphere that's dimming the light from the sun and the moon. And you're having to breathe this in. Those with lung problems are going to have a, a very difficult time. In fact, if you don't have lung problems, you probably will. The aquatic life, the tremendous shock waves, as well as the ecological disruption, destroys more than man does. You think man overfishes? Wait. This will produce tremendous amount of changes. I guess I'm worried about that. He created it, he can remove it, and he can replenish it. It's his creation. But notice, one-third of the ships. Why is that significant? Sea lanes of communication. Satan is trying to build a one-world government. 
In fact, we have competing one-world governments in the South, in the East, in the North, and now in the West under the Antichrist who's going to be arising here during this time period. You have tidal shifting. You have wind disruption. You've got geomagnetic disruption. Plus, you got no satellites. You have no GPS. They're not going to survive the micronova. In fact, a lot of what we depend on for modern society is digital, i.e. computer, i.e. microchips, will be destroyed during the microburst if it's not disconnected and protected. Of course, in a microburst, you got eight minutes-ish. Of course, by the time you see it, because it takes light eight minutes to travel from the sun to the earth, a lot of that radiation is traveling with the light. When you see it, it's too late to prepare. It's already hitting you. And how do you repair? Because your factories run on energy, but your energy grids are down. How do you get your energy grids back up when you need to replenish, rebuild these tremendous transformers? And replenish the microchips, the computer material that was destroyed. How do you get it back up when the factories have no power? Transportation is down. Sea lanes of communication. How do you move raw materials to the factories to build with? When shipping is destroyed. And what's left can't navigate. You got to pull out the map, the charts, the sextants, the compasses. You got to go back to the old ways. You got to start staring at stars again. Oh, you can't see the stars because of all the material that's been blowing up into the stratosphere. If you think the sun and the moon's dark, what do you think is going to happen to the stars at night? It'd be very difficult. In other words, everything grinds to a halt. Disasters recorded in history show man's impotence. We are dust. We are transient. Psalms 103, 6 through 19, Isaiah 45, 7. Christ, the only rock that we can build on to survive judgment. Everything else is sinking sand. As I said, trumpets one through four strike at aspect man believes he controls, but it demonstrates no control. We go back to the cars example again. The troubles demonstrate your lack of control in your life and your need for Christ. Christ stands calling. The call goes out around the world. Can you hear it? This day is the day of salvation. Hebrews 3 and 4. 
Can you hear it? Will you respond to it? Rather than praying for more control over creation that's passing away, Christians need to pray for salvation for loved ones and the eternal creation to come, a creation without Satan, sin, and troubles that will never pass away, is built on Christ the solid rock. And on that solid rock, we should be standing. This is what the trumpet judgments signify. Well, I say trumpets, I shouldn't say judgments, that's just a a habit, because throughout the church age, they've seen these as judgments, but they're not. The judgment is yet to come. It's like Pharaoh and his nine struggles with God. Those weren't judgments. Those were displays of divinity and government control and societal response. Three sets of three. The judgment was at the very end and it was predicated Upon the first, the first call to, excuse me, to Pharaoh to let the people go, or else I will judge you. And God demonstrated in three sets of three his control over nature, his divinity compared to Pharaoh's divinity as high priest, to Pharaoh's control as king of government of Egypt and the people, society and their response and rejection to believe. Thus, when the judgment came, they had nine opportunities to repent and refused by and large. Then the mixed multitude went out and all of them pretty much fell by the wayside through unbelief because they did not believe. That same is occurring in Revelation. The seals are not judgments. They're just byproducts of our sinful government, our sinful societies, our sinful culture, our sinful philosophies, our sinful accretion of of hermetic dialectism, progressivism, socialism. In the Bronze Age, was socialism in action. It just wasn't called that. Central control. And when that central control failed, it all failed like a house of cards. Now mankind is going to try and double down on this. The earth is shaking. The heavens are shaking. Everything is shaking. Everything is disrupted. Will man repent? As a group? No. Rocks fall on us. Hide us from the face of him. Of God. When it should have been, I repent. Save me, Lord Jesus. What is your response? And you say, well, I said that prayer. 
Are you living it? Are you? It's not about. It's not about just believing the prayer. It's not about. I believe Jesus lived. It is about repentance, seeing yourself as God sees you. And saying, Jesus, cover me with your righteousness. I am totally unworthy. And we do that by studying his word. It's so easy to be pulled off the mark. Let us not be of that number who then fuel the church of Laodicea that will survive into the great tribulation, bringing error, ready to worship the Antichrist. Let us not be of that number. Thank you.